Well, here in Exodus 19 and 20, we have the old covenant being instituted. God moving to, to have this wonderful, unique relationship with Israel as his covenant people. And, of course, he has made a new covenant with us. And we are in covenant relationship with him. And covenant relationship means that it's not that we're kind of, you know, in fellowship with God one minute, then you sin, and then you're sort of out with him until you repent, put it right, and then you're sort of you're back in with him. You are in a covenant relationship, which is, in a sense, like a, uh, like a marriage that... Yeah, you're still Mr. and Mrs., even though there may be uh, times of argument, times of stress in the relationship, um, you are still in that relationship. And I think that that is uh, the idea here, which carries through to the New Covenant. And so, when you're baptized into, into the Lord Jesus, you enter that covenant. And we know that the promises to Abraham form the basis of the, the New Covenant, and that we enter that covenant relationship by baptism. So covenant relationship is a wonderful thing. And I'm not saying once saved, always saved, no matter what. But what I am saying is that occasional sin and failure does not mean that even though your conscience may cry out within you that there is a barrier between me and God, uh, that does not mean that you are out of covenant relationship with him. Now, that is not only a personal encouragement to us, it is also helpful in dealing with our encounter with the, the weakness of others. That when they sin against us, and we, we look at their behavior and think, wow, that is just simply so not Christian, that is so wrong. Sure, it's wrong. But that does not necessarily of itself mean that that person is out of covenant relationship. And we, we can't judge, it seems to me, uh, that a person has ended their covenant relationship with God. Because that is tantamount to condemning them, which we are not to do. So if you can't condemn somebody who's a baptized believer, you, by the same token, cannot say that they are no longer in covenant relationship with God. Which means that you are, as it were, stuck with them. They are in the community. And in the same way as you can't choose your natural family, so you can't choose the spiritual family that God's given you. He gives that to you as an environment in which to grow. And he knows, obviously, best. So then let's look at some details of these two chapters are all uh, are both uh, on this theme of entering the covenant. Uh, let us start in chapter 19, verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, in the Hebrew, the eagle that is spoken of here is the female eagle. And the allusion is to how the um, female eagle uh, teaches its young to fly independently. And it does it by casting them out of the nest and flying beneath them to catch them if they fall, and the draft from its own wings keeps them in, in motion. Now, it would appear from looking up from, from the earth that the mother eagle is actually carrying its young on its wings, but that is not actually what it does. And that is an example of how Genesis, and in fact the whole Bible, is written and recorded from an earthbound perspective, from what 
it would look like to a person standing on earth. Now, the point is that God wanted Israel, just as he wants us, to come to independence. And yes, he is underneath us to catch us when we fall, and it is the draft from his wings, as it were, which keeps us in motion and which teaches us to fly. And, of course, that, that's quite clearly uh, to be understood in terms of, of the spirit um, that, that comes from God's motion. Bearing in mind, of course, that the Hebrew word ruach means both wind and spirit. So then, God wants us, in the end, to be independent. But we don't want that. We want to be carried, literally carried, all the way. And this is why so many religions have this feature to them, that you just need to attend church. And there's a system, a pyramid structure of pastors, etc. Uh, that will somehow look after you. And that's very attractive to people. And that's why big organizations like the Catholic Church are, are so popular. And it's why our approach, which is of individual, personal covenant relationship with God, is, I guess, difficult for people to accept. And it's why when people are in ecclesias, they can appear to function and even flourish spiritually, take them out of that environment, and they tend to collapse. And this is all because they don't realize, obviously, the wonder of this personal covenant between God and his people. Now, going on that theme a, a, a little bit more, you see in chapter 19 here, verse 6, that he says to them, if you obey my voice, you'll be my very own possession from among all peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, that is pretty well quoted, First Peter 2 verse 9, that we who are in Christ are his kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. And Revelation 5 verse 10, that we shall... Uh, reign on the earth, and we shall be kings and priests, most of the versions say, but the idea really is king-priests. And straight away we think of the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, that Hebrews 7 talks about as if it's talking about the Lord Jesus, who was both a priest, although he was not of the tribe of Levi, and a king, because he was from the tribe of Judah. And so it was God's intention right back here, in the Old Covenant time, that actually it wasn't that the kings should come from Judah and the priests from Levi, that is how it worked out, but his intention was that each one of his people should be a king-priest. And Israel didn't rise up to that. They depended upon the priesthood, and they depended upon their kings, they wanted a human king, etc., rather than realizing that each of them was actually to be a king, that it was his intention that they should be a nation of king priests. So when in Samuel's time the people come to him and say, we want a human king, the wrongness of what they did was not simply that God was their king and they were rejecting God. I mean, that, as we know, was part of it. It was also that they were rejecting their own calling, that they individually should be king priests. Now, the wonder of it all was obviously too great for them. Give us a priesthood, give us a human king, and let me just be a passenger. And let me just be picked up on the train, as it were, and carried along wherever 
we're supposed to be going. This problem that we have with taking personal spiritual responsibility uh, is a major problem, and it was for Israel, and it is for us, that God wants to enter this personal relationship with us in which we are the ones who have responsibility. That the responsibility is not to be delegated to a group of specialists. The uh, a pastoral team is the uh, uh, common phrase that is used these days, and I'm not against pastoral teams or whatever, but I'm saying that, in essence, we are each to be the pastoral person for others, because the spirit of priesthood is to be seen in each of us. And you will notice that this is actually conditional. If, verse 5, you will indeed obey my voice, then you shall be, verse 6, to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But they were not really obedient as a, as a people, and yet they are still called this, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God was so eager for this to happen that he as it were, drop the condition and wish to see them like this in any case. He talks in, in later scripture in the Old Testament about how Israel are, verse 5, my very own possession from among all peoples. You know, you only have I known of all families of the earth. God says in the prophets, and that's referring back here to verse 5, but actually they were only going to be like that if they were obedient, and they were not obedient, as the prophets also say. So God, as it were, dropped the condition because he so wanted to see them as a kingdom of priests. And I think you see there God's enthusiasm for us to be like that, to be king priests, to be the ones who take responsibility. And what that means is that whatever effort you make to responsibly care for others spiritually, to bring others to God, either those who are baptized or those not baptized yet, God will be 101% behind you in whatever you do, in every letter you write, every initiative you take. Should I print a little leaflet advertising the gospel and give it out to people? Have I got money to get it photocopied? Somehow, somehow, that will all fall into place and will work out, because God really wants it to. He really wants you to do that work, to take that responsibility. And it's this which transforms otherwise very pedestrian uh, people with little initiative uh, into people who actually have a life, a real life, because they have taken this responsibility and God works with them so eagerly. And his eagerness, as I've said, is seen in the fact that he says, if you're obedient to my word, then you will be my own special possession from among all peoples and a kingdom of priests. They were not obedient, but God still called them in those terms. Now, going on with this idea of uh, personal, uh, personal responsibility, Moses was seen, of course, as the, the great leader of Israel, the one so close to God. He goes up into the mountain, and God comes down upon Sinai and reveals himself to Moses. And Moses is to go back and, and tell the people about all this. But that was actually, again, a concession to weakness. It wasn't really what God wanted. He wanted them to hear his voice directly. 
But they say, no, no, we, we don't uh, want to do that. We can't do that. Uh, Moses, you go and talk to God and, and you, you, you tell us what, what the deal is. But that wasn't what God wanted. He wanted them all to hear his voice. But they didn't want to do that. See, chapter 20, verse 19. They said to Moses, speak with us yourself and we will listen. But don't let God speak with us, lest we die. Now, this dislike of a direct personal relationship with God, and yet an interest in being religious in the sense of belonging to a religious community, this is stamped almost in human nature. You see it, as I say, in all the different religions, and we see it in ourselves. That we also would far rather not exactly be like that. We, we don't want to face up to this personal encounter with God's word. We read the Bible, and yet so easily you can skim read it, without realizing that actually this is God speaking to me. We can pray, rattling off words and phrases that we've picked up, etc., without realizing that this is actually me speaking to God, and he is going to answer me in his word. Now, I have said that um, Moses would have been seen as the pinnacle of Israel, as it were, the one who went up into the mountain, and God came down to him. But now have a look at verse 24 of chapter 20. In every place where I record my name, I will come down to you, and I will bless you. Now, you is in the singular here. You, singular. This is the problem with modern English, that there is no uh, difference between you, singular, and you, plural, which there is, uh, of course, in a lot of languages, but it's not in modern English. God says, where I record my name, in every place, if you worship me acceptably, I will come down to you, thee, you know, to you personally, and I will bless you. Now, in chapter 19, uh, verse 20, you've got the very same language used about God coming down to Moses. He came down to Moses uh, and, and revealed himself to Moses, etc. And yet God is now concluding this whole section about entering covenant relationship by saying, I will come down to you personally, that you are each as Moses. Wherever I record my name, not just here in Mount Sinai, but wherever, wherever God's people as individuals may be, and you come to me, I will come down to you, just as I came down to Moses upon Sinai. Now, the idea is almost too wonderful. It's too demanding. To me, that I could have such a theophany from God to me in my room, in my bedroom, in front of my computer, sitting on a tram, driving a car? Is this really so? Am I just not a very ordinary person who's not particularly spiritually endowed, spiritually minded? I believe, but I'm unfortunately not the, not the best believer. You see, this is exactly the mentality of the people uh, that, oh, look, we're sinful. Yeah, look, Moses, you go talk to God and you tell us what he says. And God is there almost straining at the leash, wanting to, to come and talk to each of them.
and you really again have this idea um, taken further uh, in, in chapter 20 earlier on uh, verse 7 you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain this is a commandment to individuals because Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes God's name in vain this can on a surface level be thought to apply to blasphemy uh, you know using the words God and Jesus and Christ uh, in a, a casual way as expressions of uh, shock or frustration and I, I of course don't think that that's right and we, we should not do that but I do not think that actually that is what is in view here because the whole idea is I think that by entering individual covenant relationship with God you are taking the name of Yahweh upon yourself and in fact this Hebrew construction as it is rendered in the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Old Testament is alluded to in the New Testament where baptism is described as calling upon oneself the name of the Lord and they, people are encouraged to be baptized, to repent, and to call upon themselves the name of the Lord. Now, you've got that in, in Acts 3 and a couple of places in Acts. The point is that these commandments here in chapter 20 are all part of this idea of covenant relationship. And they were to not take the name of Yahweh their God upon themselves in vain now here again you see God pressing on the, the fissure line on the, uh, the crack the weak point I think in, in all of us the idea that yes I will join a commun community that yes I will say yes to the terms of this covenant um, as part of you know, a, a group think mentality and God is saying, do not take my name upon yourself personally in vain. Realize that this is a personal relationship between you and your God. And in the very end of history, we shall, in the end, see the face of God. And God himself shall wipe away all tears from off all, all faces and out of all eyes. That is how Revelation 22 concludes. And that is, I suppose, the ultimate, really, light at the end of our tunnel, that I shall personally meet God. And it's not that we shall be there you know, in groups, in families, in ecclesias, and uh, etc., and that, uh, that the secretary of the church will kind of... Uh, you know, have a word of the Lord and everything will be okay for us kind of thing. But we shall personally meet him. Now, Job was a man who was driven through all his sufferings to realize this. Um, you know, my Redeemer lives, chapter 19, and I will see him for myself, and my own eyes shall behold him, and not the eyes of another man, but I shall behold him with my own eyes. And... I think that God brings into our lives a lot of grief and suffering, often some form of isolation from the community of believers that we once belong to, or that we do belong to, 
in order to bring us to that personal relationship with him. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are disfellowshipped or chucked out or, or whatever, but through your own sad experience with people or with communities, although you may remain in the social network, etc., you may come in your own life to a deep and very personal disillusion with the community. And, you know, God is in that. God is in that disillusion. You may or may not be justified in that sense of disillusion, but he does it because he earnestly wants you to come to this personal relationship with him. Even if it's just your wrong perceptions of what happened or what a community did or says or whatever. So often when people get like that and fall out of grace in their own eyes with the community, uh, they lose their faith in God. And that's so sad because God has intended them to jump the other way. And God is very active in human life. He's really, like Job says, what are you doing, testing me, pushing me, trying me every moment. God wants us uniquely as his. Now, going uh, again, uh, push, pushing this thing <clears throat> uh, even further, you know, chapter 20, verse 17, uh, he goes on at such length, you shall not covet. Well, the law of Moses would be the only uh, law, uh, legal code, which criminalizes coveting. Because the only person who knows that they coveted is you, yourself. It's a very personal thing. I mean, no legal code <clears throat> would criminalize internal thought. Um, but God does. And coveting is, again, the fact this is a commandment, you, know, you shall not covet, um, this again is, is forcing a person towards a very personal relationship with their God, because the only person who knows that you coveted something is you and your God. And that, that whole thing about you shall not covet is, uh, I think, beautiful in the way that God really is pushing again and again that we should be personally his and trying to lead us to this personal relationship with him. Now finally, chapter 19, verse 19, <clears throat> there is the sound of the trumpet growing louder and louder, and God answers Moses by a voice, and Yahweh came down on Mount, Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Now, this incident is alluded to in Hebrews 12, 18 to 29, where actually uh, Paul, under inspiration, or whoever wrote Hebrews, I should say, under inspiration, um, comes up with uh, a few other um, bits of information about what happened. He says, for example, that uh, <clears throat> Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. So Moses was pretty scared, and there was this uh, great big earthquake. You might like to just turn over to, Moses, uh, to Hebrews 12. <clears throat> Starting from 18, you have not come to the mountain that might be touched, that burned with fire, to blackness and dark, darkness and tempest, da -da -da, <clears throat> where Mo even Moses, verse 21, said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, but you have come, 22, to the heavenly Jerusalem. So again, it's picking up what happened to Moses, that he came to the, to the mountain, he came to God, and God came to him. He's saying, now, this is like you. You haven't come to the literal mountain, 
that can be touched, but you have come to God. 23, the judge of all. And verse 24, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. <clears throat> and he seems to go on when he talks in verse 26 about how God's voice at that time shook the earth like an earthquake to say that the sound of the the voice of the blood of Christ which speaks verse 24 better things than that of the blood of Abel that this earthquake that they had was nothing compared to the sound of the voice of the blood of Christ that can actually shake all things, and does shake all things. Not just in a remote part of the wilderness in Sinai, but absolutely all things in heaven and earth. And the point is <clears throat> that we are as Moses, and that we have come to a far more awesome and scary, if you like, in a sense, a situation than what he came to. So, as we now remember the Lord Jesus and we take the cup of, of wine and symbol of his blood, we have come to Jesus and to the blood of the new covenant, verse 24, the blood of sprinkling that speaks far more than that of Abel. It's the blood that is actually speaking louder than the trumpet blast and the, the hugeness of God's audible voice at Sinai. And it's a voice that is so powerful it not only causes an earthquake, it shakes everything in heaven and earth. Now, the breaking of bread is designed within this framework of God's intention of you and I coming to him personally through his Son. And by correctly responding to him and to his blood, to that uh, symbol that you have in front of you in the, in the cup, this really is the power to shake you, to shake me, to shake each of us out of our lethargy, out of our um, sort of just coasting along, tagged on to a religion uh, at the back of a train that's being pulled by somebody else, and actually realize that I sit or stand here right before the Father and His Son and the blood of His Son that has the power to shake all things with a, a power far greater than the earthquake that shook, that shook Sinai.